creating an ideal business culture. Now, that's something that often eludes business leaders in any size business. Startup, Fortune 100, doesn't matter. They often sense that something is wrong in their organization. The troops are restless. Business performance could be better. Their organization's culture needs to change, but they're not sure how. So they borrow from the bigger is better school of thought and resort to large radical changes only to discover that drastic changes are as effective as a fad diet. They just don't last. So what do you do? How do you achieve lasting change? Today's guest has the answer. She's a respected and trusted business advisor, an Ivy League business expert, best-selling author, and no-nonsense lawyer. She's Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Whether you're an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur working for someone else, I want to give you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Because no one likes getting blindsided by what you don't know but somehow should or getting stuck paying for it later. Think of it as a mini MBA and school of hard knocks wrapped in one and on steroids. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Brought to you by Business MO LLC. She's Dr. Margaret Heffernan. Let me take a minute to tell you about this amazing person. Drawing on her extensive experience in having run five, yes, count them, five businesses in the U.S. and U.K., she writes and speaks about business leadership, management, innovation, and all things that really matter in work. She's been named one of the top 25 by Streaming Media Magazine and one of the top 100 media executives by The Hollywood Reporter. For her leadership as chief executive at Information Corporation, Zine Zone Corporation, and then ICAST Corporation. And she's also spearheaded multimedia productions in the U.S. for Intuit, The Learning Company, and Standard & Poor's, as well as produced programs for the BBC for 13 years. Today, Dr. Heffernan advises CEOs and senior executives of major organizations, and she's lead faculty for the Forward Institute's Responsible Leadership Program. She's a regular writer for Inc. and the Huffington Post. And her third book, as a matter of fact, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Peril, has been called a classic. It was a finalist for the Financial Times Best Business Book Award in 2011, and it's been named one of the most important business books of the last 10 years. Talk about a thought leader. Dr. Heffernan is an internationally recognized speaker. Her TED Talks, they've been seen by over 3 million people. And in 2015, TED commissioned and published Beyond Measure, The Impact of Small Changes. What a fascinating book. So it's such a privilege to have you with us here today. Welcome to Business Confidential, Dr. Heffernan. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I am too. I am so interested in your latest book, Beyond Measure, The Big Impact mm -hmm. of Small Changes. And I'm really curious as to know what inspired you to write this book. Um, well, I don't think it was so much inspiration. Uh, the people at TED who have recently launched a new book imprint, and that's a sufficiently unusual experience for any writer that, um, that I agreed. Marvelous. Marvelous. So who could get the most benefit from your book? What type of reader? Well, I think it says on the book you know, that it's aimed at everybody from the janitor to the CEO. And I really believe that because I think one of the 
real problems when we start talking about um, business cultures or corporate cultures is um, everybody thinks it's somebody else's job. And really one of the key arguments in the book is it's everybody's job. Every time you do something well in business, you add to the culture, and every time you do something badly in business, it takes away from the culture. So um, while I would agree that some people perhaps are more responsible for it than others, I think ultimately it requires everybody. Everybody. And what would you say to, for example, the janitor who says, "Ah, I just have such a small role, what can I possibly do? How would you inspire him to step up or her? I would say, actually, the janitor probably sees more than just about anybody in the organization. I think they have quite a lot to contribute. And it's quite interesting. Recently, um, I was speaking at a conference, a healthcare conference, and, um, and a gentleman who was responsible for auditing the quality of healthcare in a hospital said that they now make a point of interviewing the janitors because they do see so much. And actually, they do make an impact. You know, if a janitor insists on cleaning the floor in the, minute of, in the middle of a, you know, precious, difficult family moment, uh, that has an impact. And if a janitor thinks, actually, I'll skip that room for now and I'll come back to it so people can have some privacy, that makes an impact too. So I don't think there's any job that's so small that it doesn't make a difference. And I think it's really fundamental that leaders communicate that. Interesting. So many business leaders believe that to make a change within their organization, they have to do some type of major surgery, do something radical. But you, your book takes a, tells a different story altogether. Can you tell me how you reached that conclusion over the years? Well, I guess you could say I came at it from two different directions. The first was saying that you know the failure rate of these huge corporate change programs is spectacularly high as, of course, um, are the price tags. Um, they take too long. They don't achieve enough. I think they destroy huge amounts of trust, loyalty, and commitment. So my first thought was, actually, these things just don't work, or they certainly don't work for the companies um, who place a lot of faith in them. And, um, and they're definitely too slow um, for the kinds of uh, volatility and speed we're seeing in the business environment now. But I think the other thing I, I thought and I see all the time is that actually the people who know most about a company and the people who care most about a company are the people who work inside it, not the people who are going to take their check and walk away, but the people who have committed the most precious thing in their lives to the company, which is their time. And I have routinely found in businesses that when there are problems, it's not a surprise to anybody in the organization and if you ask those people for solutions, you should not be surprised to discover that they have some. So I think, um, you know, while I think there is a role for external consultants to play, I think by and large, the answers, the insight, the knowledge that you need for your organization is inside it. That's fascinating. If we have such a wealth of information within our organizations, why is it that you think more business leaders aren't tapping into it. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. I think, first of all, there are some structural impediments. So the bigger a company gets, the more levels of hierarchy it creates. And the more you create hierarchy, <clears throat> the more you give people excuses why when they see something going wrong, it isn't their problem. 
they can look up the corporate ladder and say, well, somebody above me will take care of this. You know, there was a very famous example when Anthony Volupis did his research into the failures at General Motors, which resulted in the transmission problem. And since then, of course, a multi-billion dollar recall. He talked about the GM salute. And the GM salute was where you cross your arms and point to the left and right in terms of, you know, who's responsible. It's very easy in large organizations to think, actually, somebody, somebody will take care of this. Uh, without necessarily naming whom. So it's very easy, and I would say almost inevitable, in steep hierarchies, for people to lose their sense of responsibility. So I think that's part of it. I think that as long as we continue to measure people's performance according to what they do as individuals, rather than as part of a team, it really encourages people to focus only on their own work and not to care about the whole. So that reinforces the same kind of lack of sense of responsibility. Equally, I think we have uh, employees who, in all of our performance management systems, are mostly encouraged to look at their own work rather than take any kind of broader responsibility. So they believe, and in many cases it's true, that their progress is going to be about what they do as an individual. So their sense of collective responsibility is not particularly enhanced. In addition to that, I think, you know, we have a whole generation of people at work now who have been told really almost since the day they were born that they have to compete with everyone they meet. So they have to compete at school for class rankings. They have to compete to get into colleges. They have to compete to get into jobs. They have to compete for promotions. So this really encourages a focus on self at the expense of any really developed sense of corporate or collective responsibility. And I think we have perhaps believed that if you get every individual to do their own best job, that somehow collectively that will be the most productive organization we can create. But of course, what we're learning is that what builds value in organizations is what's happening between people, between teams, between team members, between departments. And there's almost nothing we have in place in kind of traditional management structures that cares about that, watches it, encourages performance in that area, so we really have a lot of soloists that don't necessarily add up to an orchestra. That's fascinating. And yet there's so much talk about teamwork, teamwork, and the reward structures don't seem to really encourage that, as you've described. What could a business leader do to change that? Well, I think in the really the most, um, some of the most successful and creative organizations I've studied, performance management, 60% of that will be focused on how work is done rather than whether work is done. So it's absolutely about the social behaviors and collaborative skills of the individual's concern. So that's a really dramatic shift and weighting of values, which is the organizations that work this, this way care passionately about how relationships develop within their organizations how helpful people are to one another, how far they will cover each other's back and take responsibility for what they see. But of course, you know, the most standard form of performance management in most organizations is forced ranking, 
which militates precisely against that, because if I help you, I risk pushing myself down in the rankings. So, of course, I'm not going to do that. Now, I think a lot of this derived from a kind of grotesque misinterpretation of Darwin, a sort of thought that, well, survival of the fittest should make everyone clamber to the top. But really, increasingly, there's, there's scant evidence that that delivers much in the way of productivity. And there's a huge amount of evidence that shows increasingly that it really destroys people's sense of responsibility for anybody except themselves. It ties in with what you were saying earlier about the issues of trust, loyalty, and commitment. Right. Exactly. Because you don't have trust, loyalty, and commitment in environments where everybody's having to fight for their spot. And I think, you know, to date, we've sort of imagined that that's how people will do their best work. I would argue that it absolutely is not. And when we get into, you know, complex innovation, complex problem-solving IQ really has nothing to do with it. It's all about what happens between people and how far they can and will, you know, challenge and drive each other rather than just themselves. In those highly competitive environments, the challenge is often viewed as a threat and something to be knocked down and shot down. Yeah. And, of course, what we know from, you know, current neuroscience is that people do their worst thinking in a condition of threat. So I think, you know, a huge swathe of managerialism, which we've adopted over the last 50 years in the hope that it would bring out the best in people, really hasn't. And it's time for us to step back and say, okay, if we're going to take on a very volatile, complex business environment and try to respond to it nimbly and creatively, we need some very, very different work cultures. And that's part of what your book speaks to, Beyond Measure, the big impact of small changes. I'm intrigued by that title. Can you give me some examples of organizations where small changes have had that huge impact? What are some of your favorite stories? Sure. So there's a great piece of work that was done by Alex Pentland at MIT, uh, where he was doing some work with a call center. And I think the call center had done what many companies do, which is, you know, they're trying to be really, really efficient. So they had sort of had everybody on different schedules so that the call center was covered all the time and, you know, scheduled within, you know, tiny, tiny time segments and not a minute wasted. And he made the rather radical suggestion that instead what they should do is timetable people so that they took their coffee breaks together so timetabled teams rather than individuals. And he did this in the belief that um, actually time together is how information flows in companies. And what he found from that tiny change was that profits went up $15 million and employee engagement went up 10%. In other words, when you give people the opportunity to spend time together and to build the relationships between each other, It has a very immediate and direct impact on the bottom line. Well, that is certainly a very measurable example. That's amazing. It's it's really, it's astonishing. You you had mentioned earlier that too many change programs are too expensive and deliver too little and just take too long. What, What is a reasonable amount of time for someone to expect a small change to deliver the kind of $15 million ROI, although I realize that's an example, not everybody can achieve that, but still, to demonstrate a change 
in the direction that management would like to see in terms of building their ideal corporate culture? Well, I think it depends entirely on the problem you're trying to solve. I think the fundamental argument of the book is that work is fundamentally social. That what gives people the courage to innovate is their sense of trust with each other. And that what gives people the imagination to innovate is their experience of life in work and outside of work. And therefore, if you give people the freedom to spend time together, if you give people the freedom to spend time not thinking about work, you will trigger enormous changes. Now, how far you want to take those and how far you're prepared to go with those sorts of changes is a choice, but their impact is enormous and immediate. That's a very powerful statement that you just made about the courage to innovate is dependent on trust. Well, all innovation is a risk because it means you have to risk imagining something you can't see yet. And it means you have to be comfortable talking about an idea that isn't very good yet because ideas aren't born great. Um, They're born kind of messy and inchoate and rather confused. And it's only when they're shared and people who you trust contribute to them and buff them up and strengthen them and clarify them and define them. It's only then that a, you know, a halfway decent idea becomes a really great idea. But nobody's going to take the risk of articulating that first fuzzy idea if they don't feel that they trust the people around them. And so that level of trust becomes absolutely fundamental. If I'm in a very competitive, challenging environment, the chances of my speaking up about something, an opportunity I see, or a threat that I see, the chances of my doing that are almost nil because I don't want to look like an idiot. I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to be marked down. I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to give people an excuse to put me down. So I'm going to shut up. And, of course, this was absolutely at the heart of my third book, Willful Blindness, which was in most of the huge business catastrophes that we've seen rather a lot of in the last seven years. The issue has never been that people inside couldn't see the problem. The issue has been that people weren't prepared to talk about it early when the problem was still small and fixable. Yes, I really like that title, Willful Blindness. That has a very specific legal meaning in my world, and you're so right. People turned a blind eye. They knew what was going on, or they didn't want to know, and it caused all kinds of gigantic problems that, well, certainly big companies can buy their way out of, but what's sad is the smaller and mid-sized companies, they don't have those deep pockets, and for them, it can be totally catastrophic. Thank you, Dr. Heffernan. It's been a pleasure to have you here today. The ability to keep your finger on the pulse of an organization and take steps to empower its vitality and nurture a healthy culture is certainly a critical people skill. You've given us some great ideas and examples. And for those of you listening who are interested in her books, I would encourage you to check out Beyond Measure, The Big Impact of Small Changes, as well as Willful Blindness, two books that are great resources and worth having in your library giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. 
Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Keltner. Brought to you by Business MO, LLC. Thank you for joining me today on Business Confidential Now. You can get more information about today's guest and the resources we mentioned during today's show in the episode notes that are located on our website, businessconfidentialradio.com. Sometimes we even include some bonuses and goodies, so be sure to check it out. That website again is businessconfidentialradio.com. And also don't forget to subscribe to the show. That is the easiest way to keep up with the show and our guests, those thought leaders, experts, and authors who are transforming businesses behind closed doors around the world. Let them help you too. Subscribe today for easy access to the business information you need to succeed. You know, the reason we call the show Business Confidential now is because you don't have time to wait. So just do it. Subscribe now and leave a review. We want to hear from you. We want you to be part of our growing Business Confidential Now family. Tell your friends and colleagues so they can subscribe too. Because the more subscribers we have, the more great guests we can bring you. And the more business intelligence you'll have available to ignite and fuel your continued business success. Have an idea or a topic, a guest that you'd like to hear on Business Confidential Now? Contact me at the website, businessconfidentialradio.com. And connect with me on social media, too. We'd love to hear from you and stay in touch. Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner will be back with more of the business intelligence and inside scoop you need to succeed. Till then.